Well, it's good to have you back tonight. There's nothing more important for us to do, nothing better, nothing that should be prioritized higher than to study God's Word. Things that will be relevant and true a million years from now, things that are important to God's heart, more important than any presidential debate uh, or anything else we might uh, think is important. Those things have only relative importance, but these things are critical. So before we get started, we'll dive right in. We've got lots to cover. As you can see there, no charts, but we might as well have some charts there. Lots to cover tonight. So let's pray together and we'll continue our study of ecclesiology. Pray with me, please. God, we do thank you so much for your word that you say is not only living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, but unlike the transient things of this life, something that is eternal, something that speaks uh, truth that will be true forever. Certainly the organization of the church may uh, be something that uh, is provisional for this particular time, but these are truths that have been active and important to every generation of Christians for 2,000 years now and will have uh, symbolic significance for, uh, for all of eternity. So God, help us to think through these things as the church relates to our Christian life. We looked briefly last time at how the church relates to the world and its impact on the world, its role in the world. Now we need to understand its role in the Christian life. So help us, God, by the end of the night to continue to have our thoughts about your church strengthened and perhaps even made more accurate to understand some of the concerns that we should have in defending the truth on these matters. And also, God, that we might begin to cherish and value and pray for and honor the church the way that we ought to, uh, something that the Bible places on such a high plane in the scriptures, and we need God to see it for what it is. So God, thank you so much for our participation, and I'm assuming we got high percentage here of converted people that are indwelt by your spirit, that are true members of the church, we're part of the, the living church of Jesus Christ, and I pray that we would be encouraged tonight as we study together what the Bible has to say about the church in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well let us begin this particular section on talking about how the church plays a role in the Christian life by speaking a bit chronologically about how we would encounter our connection with the church uh, after our conversion to Christ, after it does its job of evangelism. We want to talk about the church's right of initiation, which is uh, one way to, to put it. There's a lot more to it than that, but let's jot it down this way. Water, baptism is what we're talking about. When we talk about a rite or a ceremony uh, of initiation. I'm talking here about water, baptism. We call it, letter A, an ordinance. That's what we prefer, at least that's what I prefer, and that's what uh, folks of my ilk prefer. And an ordinance simply means something that is ordered or something that is commanded. Christ ordered that we go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That was a command from Christ. It was ordered, not just uh, the, the objective truth of, hey, we want to win people to Christ, and then we want them to declare and, and demonstrate boldly that they're with me, and you go figure out how to do that. He was very specific, uh, taking this baptism from John, and now this baptism of Christ being adopted, initiated, and perpetually given to the church, that everyone who becomes a disciple of Christ is supposed to submit themselves to this, this ancient rite of initiation that not only was uh, preceded in John's baptism, but it was also preceded in a variety of other settings historically as a way in which to show your complete involvement in whatever group, rabbi, leader, or person that you were uh, being baptized into. So this is an ordinance. Uh, in the Church of Christ, we have two. This week we'll look at baptism and several other things, and then we'll split up 
the ordinances, and we'll talk next week about the Lord's Supper. Uh, but I prefer this, though not all evangelical Christians prefer this word to the other, but uh, the other word that is often used in relation to the ordinance of baptism is the word sacrament. And sacrament, like ordinance, which is from a Latin word, uh, sacrament is from the Latin word for something that is sacred, a sacred act. Uh, Sacred simply means holy, a set apart, uh, a a special act, Um, something that God has ordained clearly could be called a holy act, a sacred act, a sacred practice. Uh, But we prefer it, at least I prefer it, and in uh, most corners of our evangelical circles, we prefer that because of how the word sacrament is defined by the Roman Catholic Church. And because of that, and because of the way they have taken and built an entire doctrine on the seven sacraments of the church, uh, we want to uh, very clearly delineate, distinguish ourselves from that meaning. We do not mean what they mean by sacraments. And we need to spend a little time thinking about what they say uh, and then understand the clear distinction. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how the church defines it. And I like to quote the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It is the latest official doctrinal uh, dogmatic statement of the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of people, when you quote Trent or whatever, even though they've not uh, overturned a lot of the teachings of the church, sometimes they have, of course, but uh, it's good for us to quote the most recent. So we go to the most recent, uh, the 1994 official statement from Rome, uh, section 1250 simply says this, born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have the need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God to which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism on the child shortly after birth. Okay, is that clear what we're saying here? Okay, we've got a sin problem. We have this original sin problem, this inherited sin from Adam, and uh, we need to be freed from it, from that realm, from that tyranny of that sin, and brought into the realm of forgiveness, freedom of the children of God to become a child of God. And everyone's called to that. They're right about that. That's the call of God. And the grace of salvation, uh, the, the absolute freeness of this salvation is particularly manifest that they teach when you take a child and you baptize them, sprinkle them in this case, in a Catholic church by a duly appointed and authorized priest, uh, the church and the parents, you, you, we're just inverting it, we're saying we would, we would deny them this, this priceless gift, this grace of becoming a child of God if we did not do this. So clearly, uh, this is, I mean, you can't state it any clearer. Uh, If you want to put it in terms of of a very traditional authoritative catechism, the Baltimore Catechism puts it this way, section 117a, asks the question, what are the principal ways of obtaining grace? If you were to be asked that question, hopefully you'd have a, a biblical answer. Here's the answer in the Baltimore Catechism. The sacraments of baptism and penance were instituted chiefly to give grace to those who do not possess it. Read that carefully. How do I get grace? How do I get acceptance and favor from God? Well, they say the sacraments of baptism, the sacred act of baptism, and the sacred act of penance. They were instituted chiefly to give grace to those who don't possess it. The other sacraments, to increase it in those who who are already in the state of grace. 
So you have the the ongoing grace that is dispensed to you, the favor of God through the ongoing sacraments, the other five sacraments, but the two sacraments of penance, if you're an adult, uh, and baptism, uh, if if you're an infant, or the combination of both as an adult, you then receive the grace of God. You, you, You receive the acceptance, the forgiveness of God, to put it in the words of the Catholic Catechism uh, of 1994, you have from God the gift of becoming a child of God, okay? That's the teaching, uh, the official teaching of the Catholic Church. It wipes away, and in, in, to put it in their terms, mortal sin, the thing that damns you, right? The venial sins that you collect, the sacraments, the other five sacraments can, can, can take those away, namely the Mass. We'll look at that next week. But this is the teaching that is propagated uh, by the largest... Uh, organization that conducts itself under the name of Christians in our world today. We prefer the word ordinance because what we're trying to get away from is what this implies and what has been debated uh, vigorously since the, uh, well, for a long, long time, but the 13th century was when it heated up in uh, pre-Reformation days. Uh, Ex opere operato was was the Latin term. You can find so much written about that one phrase. And what we mean by that is Uh, roughly translated, is that we get the benefit of something by the very fact of the action being performed. In other words, there's an involuntary passivity on the part of the person getting this. It doesn't matter if you're aware. It doesn't matter if you're, you're conscious. It doesn't matter. The act of the actual thing that is being done to you, in this case, the sacrament of baptism, operates without you being an active, conscious participant in it. It is what we sometimes call uh, efficacious. We use that word in evangelical theology, uh, but we can use this in Roman Catholic theology as it relates to, to baptism. The belief that the act of being baptized is efficacious. It is effective. It works because of the act itself. And when you get baptized, something is happening to you. And we've already defined it from two, and we could look at 22,000 official statements from Rome. It is when you are baptized, the act of God's grace, the gift of becoming a child of God is endowed to you because you are participating and submitting to the sacrament employed in your life by the Roman Catholic Church. Ex opere operato. It works by the very act of you participating in it. It has power in itself. And that's the question. When we talk about baptism, to make a clear distinction, we're asking the question, is there power in the ceremony itself? Does what happens to the person who participates receiving something because of the participation in the act itself? Okay? Um, this kind of, of external rite or sign is not unfamiliar to a lot of the Old Testament teaching, particularly as it relates to circumcision. So I want to turn you to Jeremiah chapter 9 and just look at one simple text. Uh, We could look at several, and you can think of many, as you think through uh, Jesus' castigating the the Pharisees and the scribes when he talks about their, their whitewashed tombs on the outside, but on the inside they're all messed up. But look at Jeremiah chapter 9. I bring this up because we see so much of the discussion and the debate in the New Testament regarding this. Uh, Even as Paul goes back in Romans, if you remember in Romans 3 and 4, talking about Abraham and his faith and circumcision and how circumcision uh, fits into all of this, it's important that the external act be separated from the internal reality. Circumcision was symbolic of something. And and I guess the question if we're asking is circumcision, ex opere operato, Jeremiah 9 would answer the question for us. Look at verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. That's an interesting statement. 
I will punish all of those. They're not free from forgiveness. They're going to incur justice from God who are circumcised only, merely, in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Amnon, Moab, all those who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart, in their heart. Whatever circumcised, uh, circumcision was to symbolize Right? which you could go back to the picture of them being chosen and uh, a part of the covenant people of God and God was working within the seed of Abraham and all that. Great. The question, though, is, does that symbol, is it ex opere operato in the heart of, of the Jew? And the answer was, of course, no, it was not. Paul goes so far to say is, I don't care if you're even from uh, the, the lineage of Abraham. I don't care if you go through all the ceremonies. It doesn't even matter if you are a, a Pharisee and you've dotted every I and crossed every T. The realities that these things represent or point to are separate from the acts themselves. They don't act. They do not have power in and of themselves. And making that statement, uh, it, it, you could look at anything that happens in the scripture from beginning to end, and you can see that clear distinction between the two. And now we come to the New Testament, we talk about anything, the Lord's Supper, baptism, whatever it is, it would be, we would need a very explicit statement in the Scripture that you could, without participation in your heart, participate in an external sign or symbol or any external activity and have something happen to you because of the act itself, which is just foreign to the Scripture. And it's foreign, certainly, to baptism as well as to circumcision. Does the benefit come by the very act itself? Is there power in the ceremony? And what we're trying to say is no, there's not. Okay? Clear? Should be, I mean, crystal clear. And yet, it's not. And even those who are, you know, they, they don't like it when I talk about Catholics at all. Because your uncle's a Catholic or whatever, your neighbor's a Catholic. What are you saying? All I'm saying is that everything we look at, whether it's uh, Mormonism, which is in the news, whether it's Catholicism, we want to look at what is taught and when we start talking about how you get forgiveness, how you get grace, how you get accepted before God, and when those doctrines are incompatible with the Scripture, we've just got to call it out for what it is, right? If we are teaching, your neighbor is teaching, your uncle is teaching, that by the mere act of participating in baptism washes away your sin because there is power in the ceremony, see? Then we've got to say there's nothing that could be further or more blasphemous as we think about how salvation is clearly articulated to be operational in the New Testament, we, we have to make the distinction clearly. Now, that's one category. The question then comes up, what about non-Roman Catholic infant baptism? Because, of course, the Catholic says, and I've read many things, even refreshed my mind on all that they taught this week, about how you better get your kid as soon as you can to the church to be baptized by a duly authorized priest because the sin... The mortal sin of Adam needs to be washed away through baptism, okay? Well, we got a lot of people that are clearly not Catholics who are baptizing their infants, right? I mean, what do we, what do, we do with those folks, whether they're Lutherans or Presbyterians or whoever they are? We've got to, uh, we've got to ask that question, okay? That, that, at least in evangelical discussions, is under the banner of what we call pedo-baptism. And I only bring the words up because they're used and bandied about and they're on the internet and everything else. So we need to know, when you see the word pedo-baptism, uh, it comes from the Greek word pedia, which is the word for child, right? Uh, it, it means infant baptism, child baptism, uh, baby baptism. The, the argument for this is, okay, understand, 
Pastor Mike, the, the, the Bible says that, that the act of being circumcised does not circumcise your heart. So the evangelical will say, listen, I'm not a Catholic. I don't believe that it functions ex opere operato. There is not power in the act to actually save anyone. But just like circumcision didn't circumcise the heart, the infant babies of Israel, the males, were circumcised symbolically of their identification with the covenant people so that at some point they would grow up and hopefully they would put their trust in, in, in Yahweh and in repentance and contrition and in faith, they would be saved. Okay? The argument for those that are paedo-baptists but not Catholics is, listen, that's all we're saying. Right? As circumcision was to the Old Testament covenant community, so is baptism to the New Testament covenant community. Therefore, if you're going to be a part of the covenant community, if you're going to be a part of the, the chosen people of God, right, then what we do is we baptize our babies, not thinking that they get their mortal sins washed away, but just as a sign that they're in with us. So the argument becomes, if you are a Christian, you ought to baptize your infants. It's a very important thing because that's what baptism is all about. See? That's, the, that's the understanding of it. Now, if you ask the Presbyterian or whoever it is to show you in the Bible where that takes place, and we don't have time to get into all the details of arguments and counterarguments, all they'll be able to point to, there's no examples of even with a single child conversion in the Bible, right? I know there's an example of Jesus pulling a child up and talking about faith, and faith is like the faith of a child, but there's no example. Study them all carefully. There's no example of a child conversion, and so we have no explicit discussion of any child baptism, of course. They'll point to a couple of references to the baptisms that take place, like in Acts 10, uh, Cornelius gets baptized, and it says he and his household. Okay? Now, of course, there's no discussion about who the household members are, uh, but if you look at all those passages we don't have time to tonight, you'll see that there's no, there, I mean, there's no explicit way to arrive at a conclusion that what we're talking about is kids who have not responded to the gospel message, in that case of Peter, uh, and they're being baptized, though they had no clue what Peter was even talking about. They're just infants, okay? But that's the only argument that can be made. Their argument is not from texts of Scripture. Their argument is from theology. And the theology is, as circumcision is to the Old Testament, baptism is to the New Testament. So we just simply build on that. And we recognize that we ought to function in the same way. See, even Mike, you just quoted a passage from Jeremiah 9 about circumcision, and you applied it to baptism. I get that. The question was, does that external symbol function ex opere operato? And we said no, because that passage clearly says it. They'll say, well, we agree with that. But we just believe it is the same. Okay? We are not pedo baptists We believe, if you want to distinguish with labels, we believe in what is usually called believer's baptism. Uh, not that I love that phrase. Or another word you'll see often in the discussion is credo-baptism. Credo-baptism meaning the creed. When you get to a place where you put your trust in the message of the gospel, you're responding to the truth of the gospel, then you get baptized. Right? Disciples' baptism, if you will. I mean, that, that's what the word is in Matthew 28. Make disciples, baptizing them. Uh, that is what we would hold to here at Compass Bible Church, what I firmly believe, what I think is biblical. The argument countering the old, old T circumcision equals new T NT baptism uh, would simply be, and, and there's a lot we can say, I'll give you a reference or two in a minute, is simply this. Entering the covenant community or the covenant family in the New Testament is by spiritual birth, not biological birth. Right? It is about not being born the first time, which makes you a part of the seed of Abraham in the Old Testament. It is about, by faith, becoming born again, the second birth. 
Okay? Even if we want to carry that across and say Old Testament circumcision, you know, whatever circumcision is the Old Testament, baptism is to the New Testament, I'm going to say, great, but here's what's changed in the New Testament. The, 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 the concern is no longer are you related to Abraham, right, biologically. It's are you related to Abraham by your faith in, in, in God, and specifically in the New Testament, in Christ, right? You are, we're concerned about you being born again to be a part of the community, the covenant community, not born the first time. I know that's not enough for those who are, are uh, sold on this. So let me give you a couple references. Uh, if you ha- don't have in your library, you have not read, uh, this is a, a very helpful, well-written, scholarly book, but accessible, readable, Believer's Baptism. Thomas Schreiner, prolific theologian today, uh, is one of the editors here and uh, contributors to it. It's a great book. It will discuss baptism not only in contradistinction to paedo-baptism, believer's baptism or credo-baptism in distinction to, to paedo-baptism, but it will also uh, speak to all the other issues that relate to Christian baptism. Um, and that's, I don't know how big that is, 250 maybe, 250 pages, I'm not sure about that. It's about that thing. Uh, a shorter book, very readable, by Matt Waymeyer, who now teaches up at uh, Master Seminary, little book called A Biblical Critique of Infant Baptism. This is just going after that one belief, that Old Testament circumcision is basically New Testament baptism. It has simply changed now. Uh, that is a good resource, and that's much shorter and very easy to read. Um, this is a, I believe he's a Presbyterian pastor who gave up on infant baptism and told his story in this book, uh, A String of Pearls Unstrung, which uh, he explains in the very first chapter of the preface of the book. Uh, but that's a short little book, easy, simple, and uh, one more that is a little bit more, uh, less autobiographical, although it is a bit autobiographical. Uh, T.E. Watson's book, Should Babies Be Baptized? Certainly got the cutest cover of all three. And uh, if you're looking for a book to work through, uh, there are some options. If you want to go right at the heart of it, Matt Waymeyer's book is great. If you want more broad, general book about baptism, Schreiner's book. If you want a story of a pastor who's worked this out theologically and been converted to pedo, or, uh, credo-baptism, the third one. And if you just want a book with a cool, cute cover, get the last one. Okay? How are we doing on those? You get all that down? All right. Let's talk about the word so we can understand what we're dealing with here. The Greek word um, is transliterated, not translated. We say that a lot because a lot of New Testament words are that way, right? Uh, Christ is not a translation. Christ is a transliterated word from Christos. Um, If we were to translate the word Christ, what would we say? How would you translate it, Sunday school graduates? What? Messiah, no. Messiah is just the Hebrew transliteration. Anointed. That's what you would translate it, right? To anoint, right? To have the, have the one who has the oil poured on his head. That is to translate the word, the anointed one. Uh, and even that is so steeped in the symbolic, symbolic description of how you become a, a Christ, a, an anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king. It, it doesn't help a lot. So they transliterated it. Um, Sabbath is another one. Sabbath, if it were to be translated, Sunday school grads, what would Sabbath be translated as? It's just the transliteration from Sabaton. What, what, is that, what does that word mean? What? Doesn't mean Saturday. No, what? Rest. That's what it means. If you were to translate it, you'd translate it rest. Um, Abba, that one's easy, right? We have it in our English text. Abyss, that's another one. There's several. I just wrote down four. Abba, Christ, Sabbath, abyss. Here's, here's the fifth one, okay? Baptizo. 
baptizo. Baptizo, we get the word baptism from. It doesn't, that's not translated. And, and that's not really helpful. I understand sometimes why, I don't always understand it, but I understand sometimes why they do it uh, and why these words have come into our language is simply transliterated letter for letter. Uh, but this would have been helpful had we translated it. If we translated it, you'd have to look at a text and you'd have to translate it either placed into, immersed, submerged, dip, or if it's a really cool translation, to dunk, because uh, that's what you're doing. You take your donut and you dunk it in your coffee. I don't know if anybody does that. I no longer eat donuts, uh, and I've never drank coffee. Do you do that? I know my kids dunk their Oreos in their milk every night, so I've seen that. I know that still goes on. Um, that's the word, to dip. I could say, if I'm more formal, are you, are you immersing your Oreos in your milk tonight? Yes, you are. Uh, are you dipping them? Are you dunking them? That's the word we use at our house, dunk, dunk your Oreos. Um, you could use the word, if you were a Greek speaker, baptizo. Are you baptizing your Oreos tonight in milk? You're saying the same exact thing. That's exactly what you're saying. Okay? To immerse, to dip, to dunk, to submerge. And you may ask, well, why, aren't, why don't any translations do that? Oh, there is one. Uh, the essential New Testament. I don't know why I throw this out. My, br- my brother was one of the translators on this. My brother translated uh, um, Colossians in this book. But uh, a Baptist wanted to create, and he put together a somewhat distinguished list. I say somewhat because my brother's on the list. Um, sorry. Greek, Greek, you know, proficient Greek people, uh, Greek students, and created this New Testament where you don't find the word baptism. Where you find it, it's translated, and it's translated to place, in some cases, to submerge, to immerse, uh, all, different, all different translations. But you don't find the word baptism. Uh, so it's out there. I looked it up on, on Amazon to see if it was still available, and it kind of is. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that it's worth having. But, but I just thought I'd bring it up because I have a familial tie to the, to the book. I should probably say go out and buy it. I don't know if my brother makes any royalties on it or not. Probably not. But uh, there you go for what that's worth. So anyway, that's the word, right, to, 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 to dunk, to submerge. The usage of the word in the New Testament, as I often say, if you've ever been to our baptism service, is that there are two primary categories or usages of, the, of this word. You're going to put them in one of two buckets most of the time. Okay, let me read for you uh, Mark 1.8, where you've got two usages right there in one verse. Uh, I'll give you some context. Mark 1. Verse 4, if you're fast with your your Bible, you want to look at it, it says this, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. So now I get that. Baptism, baptizing, baptism of repentance, baptizing in the Jordan. I get it. You're dipping the Oreo in the milk. You're dipping the people in the river, the river Jordan. And they were confessing their sins. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. Bummer. Verse 7, and he preached, saying this, After me comes one mightier than I, and the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water. That was the means by which I did it, right? Into the River Jordan. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. So even in that text, I have a very clear distinction. In Luke 3.16, same thing, same setting. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing you with water. John 1.33, same thing. So clearly, even in that text, there's two different usages here. I'm putting you in water, right? And, and I am the one doing that with water. That's what I'm doing. He's going to come and do differently here. 
Now, wait a minute. He comes and tells people to baptize with water as well. But that clearly shows, just like he says, this is symbolic of repentance. Christ is going to come, and now this is symbolic of something else. It's symbolic, of course, it's inclusive of repentance, but of faith in the object of their, of their faith, in Christ himself, to become a disciple of Christ. This is an expression of that. So to summarize, number one, you could say most of the passages that we look at in the Bible are either going to be put into, I say most of because there are a couple other usages, but primarily one of two, baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Every time you see Paul speak of in Christ, he loves to talk about you being in Christ. I know that's a theological statement. It's a bit of an illustrative statement, a metaphorical statement. But the idea is you're no longer outside the realm of Christ. Now you've been placed into, dunked into, immersed into. You've been baptized into Christ by the means of the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's how he put it in Titus. By the washing and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Think of that now. Washing, that's a symbol of, right, water. Now you didn't, that's not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about what's happening when you're placed from here to here. The Holy Spirit washes you and places you in Christ. There's the picture of the reality that Jesus is concerned about in a lot of places, particularly Romans 6. Uh, you, you, we know this, but we've got a lot to cover, so we can't turn to all these. But he talks about we're being placed into Christ. We've been placed into his death. You're 2,000 years from his death. You missed it. There's no way you could get thrown into the scene or the bod, the dead body or the tomb. There's no way you can get into that physically. You have to be somehow judicial, ju- ju- judicially, uh, legally, theologically placed into Christ. So there's that. That's the picture of the real transaction that brings you from the domain of darkness into the reality of light, to use the words of the Roman Catholic right? The Roman Catholic catechism to be taken out of darkness and into light. How does that work? By the Holy Spirit into Christ. Then there's a lot of discussion about baptism into water. And the person is doing that, not the Holy Spirit. By means of water baptism, by the person putting you in water, there is that symbol of someone getting baptized. Lots of examples. I gave you two. Acts 8, that's the... the, the uh, uh, eunuch sees the water, hears the water, what prevents me from being baptized. Well, yeah, he's just responded by faith in Christ. After reading Isaiah 53, he understands who Christ is. He puts his trust in Christ. He then is, according to the rest of the New Testament, being placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit, being washed judicially of his sins, forgiven, relinquished from the debt, no longer facing eternal judgment, like the man on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You deserve God's punishment. You don't get it. You've been taken out of the realm of punishment and condemnation into the realm of forgiveness and cleansing. Right? Now the man on the cross had no opportunity to go get, to get water baptized. The eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? Clearly there was instruction going on there about the symbolism of that. And we have a lot of examples through the book of Acts of them being baptized into water. Now, I don't want to downplay the close proximity of these two things in the Bible. We could look at all the um, controversial texts like Acts 2, repent, be baptized. Uh, you, you, you see a close proximity of these things. But you, you have to make a decision. Is this efficacious? Does this somehow do to me something? Even if I start to talk in terms of, well, I'm cooperating I understand it doesn't happen ex opere operato with, a, with an unpartic, unparticipating child. But if I'm participating spiritually, maybe it's the act that saves me. 
And all I'm saying is we have no time to, to, to make all the arguments and counter-arguments, but let's just say this. We look at Scripture and we see the distinction. We see baptism into, God, into Christ by the Holy Spirit being the thing that changes my status before God. That happens by faith. It happens without water. Statements of being even brought into paradise without this thing clearly and emphatically stated, right? The act of baptism is an, as an external act of obedience is so obviously expected of you because it was commanded of Christ that there's no delay. There's no concern. There's no class you go through. There's no five-week thing. There's no book. There's no form you fill out. Let's get you baptized. Just like we say of obedience, it can be confusing when you read the New Testament. It looks like obedience is the thing that saves you, right? Uh, but we're saying, no, 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 we're not, we understand that. It's not by the works that we've done. And yet we read James and we see this and we read First John. If you're saved, you're going to do these good works. Same thing with baptism. It is, as our book that we pass out here by Dyer, it is the first act of obedience. It's the very first thing we ask Christians to do. It's the very first thing that Christ commanded them to do chronologically, get saved, get baptized. So let me just make the statement clearly because it should be written down at some point tonight. Water baptism does not save you. And that's why I ask the question when we're here at baptism, every time we have it, does baptism save you? You've got to ask the question, which one? And what we're saying is passages like 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 make the distinction. And they're not all that uptight about it because they recognize, as I said, if you're a Christian, clearly you're going to get baptized. Christ told you to be baptized. And he's going to ask you to do a lot of other things that clearly you've got to do. But let's not, as we think technically about it, ever conflate the two in our thinking. Right? Our faith in Christ is the moment at which we get placed into Christ. Getting placed into water is an external sign of that, that that's happened. First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 this one's we've got to take the time to look at just to show you a, a bit of a nuanced distinction. It's, it's, it's uh, subtle, but it's clear and it's undeniable. So let's look at this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Here's the picture of Noah being saved through the destructive waters of God's punishment on earth. Okay? Because they formerly did not obey. There's a lot going on in this text. We'd have to deal with it another time. Spirit's now in prison. But look at verse 20, middle of verse 20. When God's patience waited, waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, right? You had uh, three kids, Noah and his wife, his three daughter-in-laws. So you got eight people. Brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not, here's the clarification, a removal, as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, an appeal. This is a word you could find article after article written on, a pledge to God, a, 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 a crying out to God for a good conscience, an appeal, a pledge to a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The means by which this takes place, the work of Christ, it's finished, vindicated through the resurrection, finished on the cross, vindicated through the resurrection. It now is operational, that salvation, I come through the, 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 the domain of darkness out of a condemned status before God into forgiveness through baptism, not the removal of dirt from the body. That's what happens when you get baptized, right? But an appeal to God. These are so closely connected in time for most people in the first century uh, that we have this statement and yet the need for clarification between the two. Symbolic baptism, the sign of the initiate, the water ceremony, is the kind that will physically wash a little dirt off your body, but that's not the one he's talking about. The saving comes 
with baptism that instantaneously accompanies the pledge of a good conscience toward God. When one cries out to God in repentance and faith, placed into the family of God, baptizoed into the family of God on the basis of Christ's death. So we've got to keep the two dippings, the two immersions, the two dunkings in our mind distinct. The one that matters is the one that the symbol is pointing to. That's why in Ephesians it says, one Lord, one baptism. <laughs> what's, the, what's, one, what's the one baptism? Well, as uh, other writers, even I think Dyer will say in his book that we pass, there's five different usages of the word baptism. So clearly the Bible recognizes different ways baptism is used. Right? But the two major categories, even that, one of them is not the one. The one baptism we're concerned about is you being in Christ. And if, by the way, you still want to argue, well, you know what? They're so connected. Clearly, the water baptism is the thing that matters. It happens at the same time. Then Paul, who's out there trying to save people, would never say to the Corinthians, I'm really glad I didn't baptize any of you, right? Think about that. That would, that would be absurd if his passion is to see people saved. He would be all about that. He says he's all about that, seeing people placed into Christ. And now he's boasting of the fact that I'm glad I didn't personally baptize any of you. Uh, the water baptism is not the one that counts, the one that counts is being placed into Christ. So that means you don't have to get baptized, right? Is that what we're saying? No. Does obedience save you? No, obedience doesn't save you. Well, that's good because I don't have to be obedient now. Is that right? Neither of those are biblical statements. You have to be baptized and you have to be obedient. They're evidence of your salvation. They're signs that he is your Lord. Water baptism doesn't save you. So real, real quickly, water baptism, water baptism is then, let's summarize, a symbolic act of initiation. There's two levels to this to Christ, symbolic of that, and joining the body of Christ. We could look at all those passages, but there's both. You are, when you get baptized on this stage, showing your identification with the people of God. I'm a part of this group. I'm a part of you guys, right? But it's symbolic of something more profound, predicated upon the most important connection, and that is I am initiated into the body of or the, 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 the Christ himself. It's a post-conversion ceremony, Right? We're not paedo-baptists, we're believers-baptists, we're credo-baptists, we're people that believe that once you become a Christian, you then are ceremonially dunked in water after your conversion. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. After you make them, you dunk them. And dunk it comes from the word, submersion. You can sprinkle all you want, you can throw water all you want. I don't think it does justice to the word itself. And there are a lot of other books. There's a word, there's, you want a book that's thick, that's all about the use of the Greek word from extra-biblical writings. It's Carson's book. It's not D.A. Carson, different Carson, called The Use of Baptizen, which is a transliterated title. The Use of Baptizen in the New Testament. Or I don't even think it's in the New Testament. The meaning and use of the word baptizen um, to be baptized. There are other. Jewett's book. There's another one. Uh, that's another. Well, whatever. Look up Jewett and baptism. Jewett, if you want... Uh, more of the, the heady stuff on why it's submersion. Not that you need it. That's what the word means. Look it up in any lexicon. To boldly declare your union with Christ. That's what you're doing. When you come up on a stage to be baptized, or if we did them in a river or a pond or whatever, uh, you are declaring to everybody, I'm, I'm with Christ. That's why often at some baptisms, the pastor will get up and talk about how, you know, if you, uh, you, you deny me before men, I'll deny you. If you, you confess me before men, I'll confess you. Why? Because that's part of what this is saying. You're getting out of the crowd. You're stepping up. You're showing your immersion into Christ. You're declaring it boldly that you're on his team. 
observers now, the rest of the crowd, right? This is not something you do in your backyard in the jacuzzi, right? This is, a, this is an initiatory rite. That's why pastors do it or leaders in the church do it or some designate leader in the church does it. And it is for the observers in the church to embrace them. You're saying you're, you're one of us, you're part of us. That's why when we do them, I always say, listen, I want the wet-headed people to go out on the patio and you embrace them both, you know, physically and, and sociologically. You, you embrace, these are your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And there should be expressions of that. Symbolic act of initiation. That's why pastors and leaders do it, because it's initiation into Christ and into the church. Um, post-conversion ceremony by submersion. The, in, the initiates declaring his union with Christ. The observers are embracing those individuals as part of their body, part of their, their team. Baptism. All we got time for. Wish we had more time. Kind of. Said enough. The church is perpetual practice. Become a Christian, you get baptized. That's the role of the church in your life. The church needs to baptize, not your uncle in the jacuzzi in your backyard. You need to get baptized in the body of Christ, okay? Now, we're going to say, listen, you need to participate in this ongoing, every week, all the time. We are going to engage in corporate worship. The church is going to do something that you can't do on your own, baptism, and the church then is going to provide something you really can't do without the church, not well at least, and that's corporate worship, okay? Corporate worship. Corporate worship's been going on since the Old Testament. Just look at this verse up on the screen, Psalm 149.1. Lots of verses like this you could think of. It took me two seconds just to think of one and throw it up here. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. We want the godly people, the redeemed people, the assembly of, of people that have the forgiveness of God to praise him together, to worship God corporately. That is the purpose. Let's look at some New Testament text. Turn to 1 Peter 2. If you're still in 1 Peter, it's nearby. 1 Peter 2. This is a great text. I know it's several verses here, six verses or whatever it is, five verses, six verses. But read it with me. Look at it while I read it. As you come to him, talking to people that have become Christians, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, this is 1 Peter 2, 4, chosen and precious, right? God, he's important to the world. They reject him. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You're not individuals. You're here together, corporate body. He calls it now a spiritual house. It's like Paul referring to the temple of God, not just as the individual, but the corporate church itself. You could look at that another time. To be a holy priesthood. Now, the priests were known for something in the Old Testament. They were the ones engaging in worship. You stood back and watched it happen, right? They were the professionals. They went in and did the work. They offered the sacrifices. You brought them. They offered them. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now there's this picture of, of worship. Now keep reading. It stands in Scripture. For behold, I'm laying in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. What's the honor? Right? That I'm the spiritual priest. But those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. They're going to miss it. They're going to recognize they missed it. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a whole nother sermon. Verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There it is again. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Purpose clause. Here it is. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, you weren't a people at one time, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy at one time, but now you have received mercy. So get it there as the spiritual house and as priests, the spiritual community, you offer this worship and proclaim the excellencies 
of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to gather. The church plays this role in your life. It's a place where you go to engage in this. It is the purpose of every redeemed person to be a priest who professionally, if you will, worships, is the one who is designated and seen as the one declaring and proclaiming the greatness of God. won't have time to turn you to this one, but at least uh, jot it down. And I can tell you, the last time we read it, which was real recently in our, in our daily Bible reading, you keep seeing this phrase, right? To the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, over and over and over again. We are saved to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his grace. We are taken out of darkness into light, and one of the purposes is that we can praise him. The picture of the Old Testament is come together and assemble and do that. Of course, do it on your own. Of course, by yourself, do it. Like David in the field while you watch over your sheep and you do your job, worship God, I get that. While you lie in bed, the, the psalmist says, you, you offer praise to God, I get that. But the picture of, re, of the best worship is when the people assemble to worship and they proclaim the greatness of God. They praise his glorious grace. Let's define it. Letter B. First Chronicles 16, of all places, I just thought this was a good place to go to define it. Let's look at this text once you jot down the reference. Three things in this, and we could have gone to the Psalms for this. There are several places, but this is telling language, very helpful language, defining language, language that once we get this in our heads, uh, it hopefully will help you with every aspect of worship, which usually in our corporate setting, as it is throughout the Psalms, obviously, is through the medium of music and lyrical worship and vocal worship. But this is a great definition and some great words that will help us. Verse 28, did you find it? First word, imperative verb, ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord. Here's how you define ascribe uh, in my dictionary. To credit, to assign, to assign as cause or source, to attribute to or to think as belonging to having the quality or characteristic of, to take whatever I'm saying and crediting, ascribing, uh, attributing, assigning that to that person, to that thing, in this case, to God. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Notice this is a corporate setting again. Ascribe to the Lord two things in this case. Glory, that's the broadest word, kabod, that you could have for the greatness, the weight, the gravity of God. That's what kabod means, weight. The gravity and the greatness of God and his strength, how strong he is. The definition of God is that. He's the omnipotent one. He's the almighty one. He's the one who has all this glory, all this power, all this authority. You, families of the people, you go and you credit him with that. You go and you assign him those things. You attribute to him the attributes that he's revealed to us. You recognize that he has given him, given, given us uh, some revelation of who he is. Take those things, identify with those things, and tell him he is all of that. That's worship. We use music to do that because God has assigned music for that role. I mean, the whole book of Psalms is 150 lyrical songs that were, you know, here's the hymnal of the Bible, for them to utilize as a medium to convey the greatness of God through song. It's very honest. We studied it this summer, at least uh, 13 of them. I mean, there's there's a lot of, of transparency about how I'm feeling, the bad things, the good things, the judgment of God, but it is eventually all trying to express to God that he is the good that he has revealed himself to be, and we've experienced him to be. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe is a great word. It shows up in the Psalms. It's a terrific, helpful word to know what we're called to do. Um, So ascribing glory to God. You got that, right? No? I 
can tell you to, but that's what we've been talking about. That's the first aspect of this. It is crediting, assigning, saying he is rightfully these things. Attributes are attributed to him through our mental, vocal, verbal affirmation. Okay? Look at verse 29. Next verse. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due his name. I mean, that is what he is. You might as well give it to him. That's, it's commanded. That's what we should be doing. Bring an offering and come before him. Inseparable in the Bible. Number two, presenting an offering. Now, the primary way that we do this, at least with our, 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 our actions in church, is, is, or our, our sounds, is, is by verbally singing these songs. But something that's inseparable in this in the Bible is coming with an offering, a sacrifice, bringing something to worship God with. Everyone came from Old Testament times right up through Christ being there as he was observing people putting things in the treasury. They gave gifts to God. That was part of it. That's why passing the bag in church is not just, well, we've got to pay our bills now. Let's, let's do that. It's supposed to be an act of worship. We say it. It becomes rote. But the giving of something that God has blessed us with is what it's all about in the act of giving. That's, by the way, and we didn't read it, but that's how Ephesians 1 starts in verse 3. Right? He, he wants to bless the Lord who has blessed us with all spiritual blessing. We do that verbally through our words, and we do that tangibly through our gifts. He blesses us. We see his greatness. We appreciate it. We come back to God in assembly, and in our assembly, we give him praise. We ascribe to him the glory that's through his name, and we bring him tangible gifts. Even at the beginning of his life, of Christ's life, right here on earth, his incarnate life, what do we have? We have the worship of the Magi bringing gifts. That's the picture of worship. I mean, you, you can't even picture the Magi without the gifts and giving gifts. That's, that's how this works. Um, we talked about it Sunday, did we not? Oh, groan, we did. Verse uh, 18, we read uh, from Philippians 4. He says, I've received full payment. I'm well supplied. This is Philippians 4.18 having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering acceptable, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When you gave, even in that missionary act of giving, you were presenting offering to God, act of worship. One more. Look at the next line. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, the regalia of holiness. You ought to be dressed in holiness. It has nothing to do with ties, bow ties, big hats for the ladies. It's not that, but it's the picture of being dressed in holiness, okay? Worship needs to be done thirdly, as it's defined at least in this particular text, and I could prove it's this, defined this way repeatedly throughout the Bible. Uh, it is something that is done by our, our life. When we come, we come as righteous people. We come as distinct from the rest of the world. We don't cuss like they do. We don't tell jokes like they do. We don't, we don't commit immoral acts like they do. We don't steal like they do. We don't cheat like they do. That is the distinctiveness of worship. We bring to him a life that's distinctive. We bring him our words and expressions of praise. We bring him our gifts as the blessing that we want to bless God with because of his blessing to us. And then we want to bring a life that's not like everybody else. And you say, well, yeah, but Christians sin too. I get that. That's why I put slash contrite because I want to remind you of things that are said, for instance, let me turn you to one passage first before I quote that. Let's look at the righteous side of this. Turn to Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah chapter one. We just read this not long ago in our daily Bible reading, and man, it came slamming into my eyes when I read this. I thought, wow, it's so much like Malachi chapter 1, where God looks at the people who don't worship him with their best. They don't honor him with their best, and he says, I'm tired of all of your worship. And he says the same thing here. And I thought of this text, First uh, Chronicles 16, you're not 
worshiping in the splendor of holiness. Look at verse 10, Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Ouch. He's speaking to the Israelites. Sodom was the worst example, obviously, of sinful people. Well, I'm the rulers. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah, calling us Sodom and Gomorrah. That's long since been destroyed. Yeah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Oh, you're bringing checks. You're putting them in the offering. You get your animals. Great. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, wait a minute. Throughout the Psalms, we see he does delight in that. He takes pleasure in that. Even this picture in the New Testament, of you bringing a gift, it's a well-pleasing sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Oh, yeah, well, there's something missing. And when that thing is missing, right, righteous people, then it's, this, is un, this is rejectable. When you come and appear before me, verse 12, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Well, you have, God. Yeah, but not, not this way. You're not dressed right. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Wait a minute, you commanded that. I get that. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure, look at this, iniquity and solemn assemblies. There's the problem. You're not coming, worshiping in the, in the splendor of holiness. You're not living right. When you spread out your hand, oh, I'm sorry, verse 14, your new moons, yeah, yeah, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, that's, that's the sign of prayer. I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. This is interesting. You need to do some reparation in your life. You need to do some reform. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Right? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the, the widow's case. All the injustice he goes on to say in, in, in Isaiah. This, the, the, everybody was on the take and the bribes and the courts. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. You need to, though. How did it start? Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds. I know that doesn't seem to fit sometimes our New Testament theology that we unfortunately twist into some theoretical reality that doesn't make a theoretical thing that doesn't make any sense in reality. But here's the deal. You come to church, right? You're supposed to bring a life that's distinctive. And if it's not distinctive, as you come into corporate worship, the assembly of corporate worship, right? And here's the other passage I was going to quote earlier. Psalm 51 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's David having committed adultery, okay? That's going to happen. People are going to do that. Even Christians, now here's what's the deal. Contrite, repentance, you break your heart before God, and then you come to worship. You don't come with sin on your hands. You don't come with an obstinate heart that is not willing to confess your sins, right? And then you live a life. If that's the way we live with sin and conviction and we sin and we stumble and we repent and we, 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 we as Paul says to the Corinthians, we despise the things that we've done and we come before God seeking his forgiveness, then we're coming here in the splendor of holiness, right? We, do, we worship with righteousness, contrition, recognizing our sin when we sin and living a repentant life, a different life, that's how biblical worship is defined. Ascribing to God, okay? Oh, we got that. We sing the lyrics. Presenting an offering done by righteous people. There's a biblical definition of corporate worship. Personal worship's not much different. John 4, I'll just read it for you. You know the text. He's having a discussion with the woman at the well. Our time is flying here. And 
Remember, she starts talking about worship. She says, well, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is where you should worship because the Samaritans had to set up a whole different worship system on Mount Gerizim because the Jews down in Judah wouldn't, Judea wouldn't let the, the half-breeds that intermarried with the Assyrians come to their worship system. They built their own, and they had two different places. Jesus is plowing right through the middle of the Samaritan territory. She's pointing over her shoulder at, at Mount Gerizim, and he says, uh, and she asked the question, well, what's the deal here? She's really trying to obfuscate the conversation because, you know, she, he's just nailed her on the fact that he knows her sin. But nevertheless, he, he, she asked the theological question, where are we supposed to worship? Jesus responds, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation is of the Jews, not the half-breed Samaritans. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers, because she was about to be converted, We'll worship the Father in two things, he said, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people, such people, to worship him in two ways, spirit and in truth. God is spirit. He reiterates, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Real quick, it's my only discussion in this ecclesiology lecture to talk about this worship. We can't ignore John 4, to worship in spirit, okay, to worship in spirit. When we talk about worshiping in spirit, here's the context, Mount Gerizim, Mount Moriah, where do I worship? Do I worship in, in, in Jerusalem? Do I worship here? I'm concerned about, you know, even the priesthood, the Samaritan priesthood, the Ju- Judean priesthood. Come on, what, what do I, where, how do I do this? Here's the essence of what Christ says here and all throughout his earthly ministry. Worship does not consist in externals. I mean, it just does not consist in externals. This sounds a little bit like our discussion we started with. Circumcision is not just external. Circumcision was... The uh, symbolic of what's going on in your heart. Has the sin been cut and cast away from you? Have you repented before me? Is your heart contrite? Are you walking differently and distinctively in this world? Well, in this case, and we could look at so many, but we'll start with Isaiah 29, and I just put it on the screen because Jesus quoted it. We see it in the Gospels, but it happens all the time in the Bible. The Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's become externals and even the stuff you've laid, a layer of, of man-made tradition on top of it all. You need to understand that's not worship. See, And we cannot talk about corporate worship without making a clear statement about the fact that it really has nothing to do with the style, the tempo, the volume. I understand those things can be helpful or distractive, but that is not worship. It is not in the externals. It does not consist of the externals. That clearly is part of what Christ means when he says, worshipers of God must worship him in spirit. The question on the table was, where do we worship him? How do we worship him? That temple, this temple, that mountain, this mountain, that priesthood, this priesthood. Stop. We need worshipers who worship in spirit, which he goes on to say throughout his ministry. For instance, the Pharisee discussion in Mark 7. He talks about the tradition of elders. He says, the, got all these things. You try to observe the washing of cups and washing of pots and copper vessels and dining couches and all these things. When the Pharisees said, why don't your guys wash their hands like they're supposed to? You can't really honor God without doing that. And he, then he, that's when he quotes Isaiah 29. Isaiah did prophesy properly about you hypocrites. It's written. These people honor me with their lips. Their hearts fart from me. Spirit is something going on in, in internal. But before we go any further, we need to talk a little bit about how that has brought the church uh, to a, a, a practice of iconoclasm, um, the, iconic, the iconoclast, um, and, and, and certainly because your pastor is very iconoclastic, um, to, to your dismay, some of you, uh, I understand that. So I want to I talk about it for just a second, okay? Iconoclasm. 
Clasm means breaking. Icons mean images. This word has been used in a variety of ways. It's even metaphorically used in discussions today, but is used historically and literally of those who broke the images of the church, the statues, the uh, altars, the candles, done with all of that, the relics. And, and of course, if you know anything about the history of the Reformation, this started even before the Reformation proper, but it reached a, a high point in the Reformation, in part was needed because of what had taken place from the fourth century on, very slowly the accumulation of the kind of, of uh, icons that were utilized in worship, so cluttered the worship by the time the Reformation came and we returned to a biblical gospel and, and a focus on what the Bible says, we then started looking at what the Bible says about worship and we got a lot of people hot and bothered about the problems of, of the uh, cluttered worship of that era. Um, let me give you some historical not quotes from these people, but, but historical writings about these people. John Knox, for instance, in Scotland, he and his band embarked on a concerted campaign of iconoclasm, smashing and removing religious images, which they associated with idolatry. That was their concern. This is not only cluttering, this has become a focus of devotion. And purging churches of altars, statues, crucifixes, carvings, bells, pictures, and the list goes on and on in that, in that section of this history book. They hoped to purify worship by eliminating all considered to be false or detracting from the honor that God alone deserves. John Knox, Zwingli in Switzerland. At the time, there were occurring sporadic outbreaks of iconoclasm in churches in Zurich and outside, much of it intensified by the preaching of Zwingli. Zwingli would preach. People would understand the implications. At times, the directed application was, we're done with this. They became iconoclasts. And his colleague at St. Peter's, Leo Judd, which is a really cool name, Leo Judd. Anyway, uh, Zwingli. John Calvin, of course, in, in Geneva. For Calvin, notice this is a huge statement, the worship of medieval church had become gross idolatry. The issue of idolatry was for him as serious as the issue of works, righteousness, and justification. Catch that? The issue of idolatry, which was all these images in the church, had come, become for him as a serious an issue as, as works, righteousness, and justification. The reformers, like the prophets of old, it's an interesting tie, we could study that in the Old Testament, needed to attack the idolatry and the external show of worship of their time. The antidote to the theatrics of church in Calvin's day was a godly simplicity of worship. Okay? That spirit of iconoclasm certainly took hold in my life, in my training, in my development, in my even devotional life to a place where I'm, I, I just I, I bristle at it all. There is no direction in the New Testament that will lead us to any kind of, of, of liturgical symbolism other than the ordinances of the church and two of them were specified, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Beyond that, we don't have it. Now, you can make a case it's not prohibited, but historically, at least in my own heart, there's such conviction that it's distracting that I'm not even interested in it, right? You, you can just, you're not going to find that in, 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 the, in any positive place in my heart. And, and I, I'll take heat for it in, in that we don't have a cross in the church. I get people saying that all the time. Where's the cross? Where's the cross? I say, listen right? That, there's the cross. Hopefully you'll hear the cross. It, it's not about a cross. It's not about candles. It's not about altars. It's not about any of those things. They all need to be practical. Even the pulpit itself, which, well, you got a big icon there. It's all, it was constructed to fit the stuff I had to throw up here, right? It, I, I'm an iconoclast. Iconoclast in part, if you want to trace it back, to Jesus making the statement, 
all of the trappings of this worship are going to go away. And, and what I'm looking for is people to worship me in spirit and in truth. The Bible talks about us preaching the cross. It never talks about us right, providing one in the buildings or the places in which we worship. Right? And I know that's extreme, and I, w- I have no problem if a church has a cross, and I preach at many churches that have them. Uh, you know, uh, you're never going to see one hanging from my neck or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not freaking out when I see that. As long as we don't miss the point of what I think the teaching of the New Testament drives toward, and that is, I think, a proper kind of, of iconoclasm uh, in, our, in our thinking. To put it in the great words, I think, of, of John Calvin here, uh, simplicity in our worship, at least an external simplicity, because what matters is the internal. And it can be as complex as you want in your own heart, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Worship in spirit certainly means, among other things, it does not consist in externals. And clearly, to worship in spirit... Right? I, I need to recognize that's a statement to my own heart, to the internal of my heart. It's gotta, I've got to be internally engaged. I cannot worship without an internal engagement. And I'm going to be a bit redundant on this in the, in, in the next point, so um, I don't need to elaborate on this quite yet. But obviously, I can't go through the motions. Just like baptism is not, not ex opere operato, neither is worship in any way. Sitting through a worship service does not score you any points. You can read Isaiah 1 and see that. I'm done. Who, who's required this trampling of my courts? Well, you did. And I'm thinking I did a good thing because I went to church today. And all I'm saying is that, that has really no concern of God. He's looking for you to worship in spirit. And if your spirit is not engaged in worship, worship then it's, it's, it's useless to God. And he, he, he has no, gives no credit or no, you know, there's no pleasure for him in that. Better way to say it. Obviously, the, the other side of this is worship in truth. We've got to worship in spirit and worship in truth. Now, this is under attack in modern Christianity these days. Um, but let's just put it this way. No truth, no worship. If you're not truthful in your worship, and by that I mean just the Oxford definition or the Harvard definition, use whatever definition you want of truth, which basically will come down to this, a correspondence with reality. We're talking about ascribing to God the things that are true. If you're ascribing to God something that is not true, if in your mind you're praising God for something that he is not, if you are presenting your heart in the most sincere veneration to a God that is in your mind different than the God he's revealed to be, then it's not worship, okay? Uh, for instance, um, you know, you look at, uh, I mean, you name it. I, I can't even believe where we're at today in, in, in missions, for instance, where we will have missions organizations talking about the worship of Allah among Muslims as something, you know, well, not as bad as we used to think it was, because at least they worship God. The question is, how do you define that God? If my worship is not in truth, if I'm not speaking of the real God, if I don't define him as the God of the Bible, if I don't see him as the one who has been authenticated by his own written revelation, then I'm not worshiping God. I don't care how devoted you are. I don't care how sincere you are. Right? To talk about a Mormon, for instance, thinking of the Mormons here uh, recently, to say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, right? And to worship him not as the eternal incarnate God, right, is, is I don't care how great and how wonderful they are in bringing gifts or their own quote-unquote righteous lives to their worship. I don't care how sincere they may be or even engaged in their own heart with worship. If it's not the true Christ they worship, if it's a Christ that they deny some aspect of who he is, it's not worship. And we have to recognize that in the words of Christ when he says, we're looking for people that worship in spirit and in truth. And you want to bring it closer to home, look at guys like Rob Bell, wanting you to worship a God, right, who's a lot nicer than the God of the Bible, right? If your God is nicer than the God of the Bible, then whatever you're worshiping 
if you worship under the, under the teaching of those leaders or you engage in thinking of God the way they want you to think of God, you're not worshiping God, you see, if there's no truth in your worship, if it is not a correspondence with the real God that is, if you're ascribing to God this nice thought of, I'm so glad you're a nice grandfatherly old God who will never hurt a fly, and it's so wonderful, Christ, that you're the kind of person that accepts everybody and doesn't want anybody to judge anybody, I love you for that, Jesus. You haven't worshipped. You've worshipped a God of your own imagination. Many evangelical churchgoers do worship a God of their own imagination, and unfortunately, they're not engaging in real worship, no matter how sincere or moving it might be. Secondly, it has to be conscious and directed truth. If you're going to have truth, worshiping in truth, it needs to correspond not only with the reality of the object, but the reality of the definition of what we're doing. In other words, if worship is something that engages in my spirit and my mind, I I have to understand what I'm saying and I have to direct it. For instance, when my mind clicks out, checks out, turns off with a lot of Pentecostal worship, for instance, where I'm really encouraged to feel something, experience something, get my mind disconnected, or even in the Eastern philosophies that are creeping into some of the branches of spiritual formation and all these things that we talk about that that we think is so biblical, which simply is nothing other than removing ourselves from the kind of thinking and control that the Bible calls for in our minds, then we're not worshiping in truth and we're not worshiping. And if it's not directed, then it's not worship. Truth has to be truth in terms of my conscious awareness of it and my direction of it. And a lot of people think they've worshipped based on how they felt when they worshipped, not about whether it was accurate, whether it was conscious, whether it was directed, whether the actual object of my worship was what was biblically revealed, who he is, and whether or not I've engaged in what the definition of worship is. could say more on that, but it's been a time problem here. So let's talk about the church's proclamation. church's proclamation is biblical preaching. That's the call of the church as it relates to what we're called to continually dispense from the front when we gather the God gifts the church with teachers and those teachers are to dispense what? According to 1 Peter chapter 3, it's the whole point of the church on earth as it sustains the truth amongst the generations, the darkening generations of the world. Paul writes this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, I want, if I do, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is, here he defines the church, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Buttress, pillar, things that hold up the truth. The church on earth is the gathered, assembled church, the, the, the people of God to right worship him, get that, understand that, to baptize new converts, get that, and to uphold the, the truth. So in your life, what role does the church have? Well, it helps you uh, by baptizing you. It helps you by... Uh, and it facilitates your your perpetual worship. And it also is to continue to to shove truth up and and hold it up and to to buttress and and, and support truth in your life. That's what it's about. It's the church and truth. It's to uphold the truth. You have the first one now, the church and truth. The, The point is to uphold it. You should be hearing from the front things that correspond with reality as are clearly substantiated by the written revelation that we carry in to the church in our Bibles. That's, that's the point of it. We uphold it. Hopefully when we're done and we're all dead and we hand off the church to the next generation, we've done our generational job of upholding the truth. We do that in process by proclaiming it all the time. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to go to God's word and we're going to focus on the word. We're going to proclaim the truth, which is the word. Preach the word in season, out of season. 
Time will come. People won't endure it. They don't want it. They, want, they have itching ears. They want to accumulate people for themselves. It'll tell them what they want to hear. They're going to turn away from it. But our charge before the presence of God and of Christ is to preach the word, which is the truth. And it is for us as we gather to feed on the truth. I wish I could spend the time differentiating all these the way I'd like to. We leave behind, and as an institution, we are all about the truth. In process, we proclaim the truth. That should be a large segment of what we do chronologically on the clock. I mean, we should spend an hour doing that, and we do, at least. And we then come and, and, and feed on it. First Peter chapter 2, 1 and 2, uses that analogy of feeding. You've, you've tasted that the Lord is good. Um, you to crave it like pure spiritual milk. It's a great text. And it's quoting scripture throughout. You ought to look that up sometime soon. So what we're looking for then is preaching that's biblical. Preaching that's biblical. Number one, preachers don't use the Bible to preach their messages. If you've ever heard me talk about preaching, hopefully you've heard this statement before. What you don't want is preachers that figure out what they want to say to their generation and they use the Bible to get that message across. As I like to put it, I know this is wordy, but it's worth getting down in our vocabulary and our thinking. The point of biblical preaching is to have the preachers be used by the Bible to preach its message. And, and, and I've been to preaching conferences, and I've heard people that have very big churches talk about how you're supposed to assemble sermons, and they say stuff like this. Figure out what you want to say. Get your Bible software program. Find a bunch of verses that might be assembled in some format that will help you say what you want to say, and then go say it. Right? That's not biblical preaching. We talk about expository preaching because expository preaching is the kind of preaching that explains the Bible. And that, by definition, means we're trying to have the Bible use the preacher to preach its message to this generation. Of course, we need to say it in the language in which we live. I'm going to speak in English. I'm going to try to apply it to the ways in which we live in our marketplace with all the doodads and technology that we have. I'm going to try to be very applicable and relevant to the people, but my point is to take the truth of God's Word, have the Bible use me to preach it. I'm not using the Bible to preach my message. And unfortunately, even in seminaries, that gets turned so around. I want to have you look at a passage with me real quick. Jeremiah 23. If you haven't read this passage lately, some of you maybe you've skimmed by it and haven't really thought about it. This is a text you've got to read every now and then. If you want a good definition of, of expository preaching, I know this is in a time where the prophets aren't working off of, in the classic period of the prophets at least, aren't working off a text. Um, but what a great definition. Great, gives such great substance to what we're talking about. Verse 16, let's start there. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Imagine God saying this. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Oh, great. Okay, let's go golfing. What are you talking about? They're filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions, look at this, of their own mind and not from the mouth of the Lord. There, that's exactly what I'm trying to say, right? They got an idea. They want to preach it. They put God words all around it and they say it. As opposed to, finding out what God says and reiterating that. And oftentimes they're motivated, as verse 16 implies, by wanting to give people hope. I want to say the nice things. I want to say things you'll like. I want to say things you'll high-five me for at the door. So I can come up with stuff that you'll like. I, got, I mean, I know stuff I'd like to hear. But he's saying don't listen to that. Verse 17, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, they don't like the truth, they say, oh, it'll be well with you. Because isn't that kind of God you want? Just affirms everybody, doesn't judge anybody? And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. It won't be a problem. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? No one's done their homework here. 
And to put this into our context, when the truth has been once for all delivered to the saints, it's codified in black and white in propositional statements in English in my lap right here. The question is, have I gone to this book, understood what it says, and am I delivering its message to you? Is that what's happening in our kids' program? Is that what's happening in our junior high program? Is that what's happening in our high school program? Is that what's happening with our college people? Is that what's happening across the, the parking lot in Thrive? Is that what's happening in this auditorium? If that's not what's happening, God says, I don't want you to listen to them because they're just coming up with what they want to tell you. Drop down to verse 21. I didn't send people like that. I didn't send the prophets like that, yet they ran. I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 22, love this, my favorite verse in this chapter. (laughs) But if they'd stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. Love that. If they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. The pastor needs to understand, the preacher needs to understand, the teacher needs to understand. These are God's people need to hear from God. The point of the preacher is to get the message of God from the text of Scripture and deliver it to the people. If they'd stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Instead, they're looking at people that are hard-hearted, don't like the word of God, giving them a different message. It's exactly what Paul told Timothy would happen in the end times. It would be so bad, it'd be hard to find a place where you had a pastor who was going to preach the word because people want to hear stuff that doesn't sound like that. It's too harsh. Look at verse 26. How long will there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? and who prophesied the deceit of their own heart. That's what they're doing. Who, th- who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, which he's going to say in a minute is a lie, right? But let him who has my word speak it faithfully. It's another one, my second favorite verse in this passage. Let the prophet who has a dream, if you've got an idea what you want to tell the people, hey, go ahead and tell it. But you know what? It's wrong. I don't want people to listen to it. Let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? Well, they look the same, but they're not, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Do you understand what this text is saying about what real preaching will feel like? It won't feel like what people want, unless, of course, they're converted And they're willing not to come to God saying, hey, tell me what I want to hear. In the stubbornness of my heart, I don't want to change. I don't want any conviction. I just want people to pat me on the back and tell me what I want to hear. But if people are willing to come contrite before God and say, let me hear the word, I'm ready to have it adjust, change, transform my life sharper than any two-edged sword or like a hammer or fire. I'm willing to have it singe me. I'm willing to have it change me. I'm willing to have it bust the hard places up in my own life. Well, you're going to need preachers that are committed to having the Bible use them instead of them using the Bible to preach their messages. Number two, it's always going to drive to application. If you want my definition of expository preaching, even based on what we just read in Jeremiah 29, it's going to derive its content from the text. Okay? Preaching that drives to application, you've got to have it be something that's going to get to the place of, of what does the Scripture demand of me? What does it want me to think? What does it want me to do? What does it want me to value? What does it want me to prioritize? What does it want me just to, to put into practice? What does it want me to deny? What does it want me to avoid? It's got to derive its content from the text, clearly. It's got to accurately explain the meaning of the text. And then, where most preaching stops, we need to keep going. We need to affect the changes, persuasively affect the changes intended by the text. Now, think that through. That's expository preaching. It takes the text... And it says the message has got to come from what this text is all about. I've got to then accurately explain the text. That's what the word exposit means. And then 
I want to see it affect changes in people's lives that were intended by God in that text. That's biblical preaching. That's the kind of preaching you should demand. And when it stops taking place here, you should throw a rock or two and leave and go somewhere else where you can find it. Expository preaching. Clearly derives its content from the text, accurately explains the meaning of the text, persuasively affects the changes intended by the text. Most expository preaching taught in seminaries today, even in Bible-believing churches with a high view of Scripture, only teach A and B. They teach that you ought to get the content from the text. That ought to be how your outline is built, and then you ought to explain it. Then you hope everything works out. But real preaching that moves from just filling people's minds with information about God, but to biblical application, to foster doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive themselves, they have to push their sermons to a place of change. Number three, I talked about this already just recently in a sermon series on the weekend, but hearers have got to be receptive. And didn't we look at this first just two weeks ago, First Thess 2, 12 and 13? We exhorted to you, we encouraged you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's applicational preaching, that's expository preaching. When you receive the word, verse 13, right? Paralumbano, that's the word to accept. You heard it from us, and you decomai, you accepted it, right? You embraced it. Not as the word of men for what it really is, the word of God. Real biblical preaching is not going to happen unless the circle is completed. And it's got to go from God through the preacher to receptive hearers. God's word, God's messenger, receptive congregants. With no time left, church is peer pressure. And I got I to plow on because we, we won't have time next week. So for what I got next week, church is peer pressure. I don't know, that's a cute way to say it. But what we're talking about here is church fellowship. But let's define it biblically, though. Hebrews 10, 23 and 20 through 25. I'll read it. You know it. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. Consider how to stir, stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting meeting together. This is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Classic text. You've heard it a hundred times, right? A couple things to note. Verse 23, it's critical role. We're talking here not about preaching. We're talking here not about, uh, you know, any formal worship. We're talking about people connecting with other people at the church. The critical role of that begins with this statement. You've got to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And that means we've got to be built up. We've got to be supported. We've got to be connected. It's going to happen from more than just orienting our mind toward God in worship and being exhorted from the preacher. There's got to be interaction among the people. He goes on to talk about don't give up meeting together. You've got to be in person to do this. Internet church won't work. Streaming sermons isn't going to cut it. There is more to the church and its role in your life than getting the teaching or experiencing the worship. You can get a great, you know, streamed sermon. I mean, uh, streamed sermon. Yeah, you can do that. And you can get great Christian music uh, on your CDs and all of that. But you can't have this aspect of the church's role in your life. And that is people that know your name, know beneath the surface of who you are, and are going to connect with you together. Um, the word here, you, you know the word synagogue, right? This is epi, sunago, uh, which is we, we, meeting together. I just want to make sure we don't miss the point. This is not just Starbucks meetings. This is the church when it's synagogues together. This is the church when they get together in an assembly. This is talking about what we do here, church, together, coming to church. People think it's not necessary. They read this verse and go, oh, I'm going to meet together. I'll meet you here. We'll talk at the beach when we surf about Christ. We'll go to the coffee shop. We'll go to the mall together. It's not what we're talking about. Got no time to prove that to you. But Oh, and by the way, the critical role in letter A here, if the church is going to be that to me, you can't pick a church that doesn't provide that pressure, right? In other words, a lot of people want a church where they can feel relaxed, not only by the sermons, but by the people, you know? 
They don't want Bible thumpers, judgmental people. If you don't have a church where iron is sharpening iron, which is where this text is going, if you don't have people that are going to really, you know, every now and then feel like they're meddling in your life, then you haven't picked the right church. I think of passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 58 that I wrote down. He says, be always uh, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Or Romans 12, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Those kinds of statements need to be, that needs to be the culture of the church you attend. And then you need to get there and not stop. Letter C, then the Bible says everybody in that church needs to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And that's a great word, by the way. Kata neo. Neo because the word no or knowledge or mind. Kata is the, the preposition down. Um, it's to think down on it. When you think hard, your head goes down, right? That's the picture here. The, the picture of, oh, I got to think about this. That picture in that very vivid word is what the Bible says you need to do when you think about how can I stir the people in my church up to love more and do more good deeds. Love who? Love God, love people, and to do righteous things. Say no to sin, say yes to righteousness. How can I do that? How can, hmm, think, I got to think down on that for a little bit, figure out how to do that. That is the kind of church you want to be at, where people are thinking carefully how to prompt other people to godly living. The preacher thinks about how to do that in his sermon. The worship directs our minds in the direction of God, but the people on the patio in their small groups, as they connect with each other, they need to be thinking, how can I do that? How can I help other people grow in their Christian life? How can I help other people resist temptation? And lastly, the text ends this way, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That means the closer we get to the end of time, which I assume we're kind of, you know, on the warning track right now, the question is, do I need more church in my life or less church? Do I need to be there more often or less often? Do I need to be more involved or less involved than I did 100 years ago? The Bible says all the more as you see the day approaching. A lot of people are thinking, well, I'm growing up in Christ. I don't need the support of those people as much. I don't really need all that. The Bible says the further you go in this thing, the more you need it because our environment is going to be less and less conducive to our spiritual growth. Let's pray. <laughs> There's the abrupt ending without, without time left on the clock. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time to jam through this information, to think through a little bit of the role of the church in the Christian life. Baptism, I hope everybody in this room has been baptized, submerged in water by a church leader in a church context after their conversion. Uh, I hope that's true of everybody here. If not, I pray they'd fix it. I know Mark uh, can probably in a second tell us when and how. And God, I pray that as we gather for worship each week, we would do it in spirit and in truth, understanding what worship is, bringing our offering, understanding our mind needs to be engaged in every lyric we sing with a life that's uh, not bringing in any unconfessed sin. And God, I know that uh, our churches are in great need of us uh, encouraging one another, not just through the pulpit ministry, which is important, but also just in our interaction with one another. And I know that's hard, God. People sometimes want the freedom from not feeling that positive peer pressure, but God, let us recognize we're here to do what you've asked us to do in the church, and we all need to participate in caring enough to ask some hard questions and keep one another accountable and all the things that this implies. So continue to make that a reality in our church, God. I know it's easier to slack off on all of these things, but we want to do them and be involved in them and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And God, it looks like in our world, it's uh, time for your return and it is drawing near. We don't know how much longer we have, but we certainly want to make the church a greater priority in our lives. We want to be more actively involved in it. We want to do more of what we've learned about tonight as the time runs out here on the eschatological clock. Thanks, God, for us spending our time together here. And I know the time's run out for us 
in this session, but I pray, God, you'd let these things linger in our minds as we ponder them. Even as we drift off to sleep tonight, we can think about the greatness and importance of the church and all that it should be doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.